Amen. So if you have your outline, you notice we picked up initially in point number one because I wanted us to see under points number one and two how much effort the Apostle Paul put into utilizing himself as a, a point of reference, a point of reference for what he's going to talk about. He said over in verse one of chapter 11, be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ and that imperative, and that's what it is, an imperative presupposes that the apostle's life is worthy of mimicking. That's really what our Greek word is, mimite, in the original language. It means to mimic. It means to do what he does. And we looked under point number one. We considered three things under follow me in my walk. That's the way I put it. And we looked at um, the subcategories under subpoint. Uh, point number one, sub point A is in my thinking. We are to think like the Apostle Paul. And uh, that is because the Apostle Paul was thinking like Christ. This is something that he laid out explicitly in First Corinthians chapter two, verse 16. If you'll pull that up. One of my uh, our brothers was asking the question. Um, why is it that when you go into different church communities, very seldom are they doing reference teaching and reference preaching? That is establishing their propositions or their ideas on texts of scripture. And you guys are very much used to um, many passages of scripture being used to establish our ideas, our interpretation, our points of view. And that is because the Bible is sufficient to that end. The Bible is sufficient to give explanation to legitimate propositions when they're set forth as this will be. The Bible says, for who hath known the mind of the Lord? If we were to pause there, we would understand that God has a what? He has a mind. If we were to drill down deeper, the Lord here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's curious in this context. And the Bible would tell us as we're going to see, because we're going to penetrate into uh, what is meant by a hierarchical rule um, that no one can know the father apart from the son. So the son has come to reveal the character and nature and even the mind of the father to us through himself. And notice the privilege of the text for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of what? All right. So that is a powerful proposition. And it implies that the believer has a kind of fellowship with God that allows us to hear his will and understand his ways in a fashion that actually informs our own mind. This would be Philippians chapter two, five as well. You heard this. This is another imperative. Let this mind be in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? So what I'm doing is a couple of things right now. I am reference teaching. I am making a proposition. I am demonstrating that that proposition has its origin in scripture. Not only am I making the reference to the scripture, I am explicitly taking the topic or the subject. And the subject right now is the mind, the noose. And what I am not doing is taking passages that do not uh, have contained in them the very subject that we're using. I am actually doing that. I'm taking the word mind and showing you through different passages of scripture that the scriptures talk about our mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you can actually benefit from this imperative when we look at the next verse. I'll just frame it. Look at the next verse here and notice what Paul says about Jesus 
and why we would also want that mind to be in us. He says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be what? Right. So this is where we're going to be dealing with our first category as we deal with the taxonomical structure of the relationship between God and Christ. That's what we're about to deal with now. And you'll notice that I have this box in the which this category is in. I want you to mark that. This is a box, meaning that it's separate from this box and separate from this box because this category is its own species. It's its own category. Here we're dealing with the Godhead. We're dealing with two persons who bear the same nature. Would you agree with that? But they are distinct here in this sense. We are calling God what the father and Christ is the what he's the son. Right. But they share the same what nature. They are both God. That's why they're in that box. You guys got that. It's important for you to see that box uh, affirms what we're reading in verse number uh, six here. Notice what it says, who being in the form of God and that that Greek term there means bearing the same divine qualities, bearing the same nature as the father. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, it was not his. Um, he was not struggling with the idea that the inferences were made that he bore equality with God. He didn't have a problem with people drawing the conclusion that if you have seen me, you have seen the father. Right. And so that would be blasphemy under most sort of strict monotheistic concepts. That would be blasphemy because there's only one God. Right. Monotheism asserts one God. And when they do it, they're doing it in what is called the unipersonal or monopersonal sense. They are not viewing it in the sense of one God in nature. Uh, subsumed are expressed in three persons in uh, in character. They're not doing that. Most monotheists are saying there's one God and one person. Like Jehovah is one person. So that for Jesus to call himself God, he is actually saying he's the same person as Jehovah or he is equal to Jehovah, which means we're not dealing with a unipersonal, but a bipersonal divine being. Does that make some sense? Right. And so this is where we'll penetrate a bit into this uh, Godhead species in a moment as Paul explains to us the idea of Godhead in relationship to headship, because that's really the topic we're going to be talking about. I can let you in on that right now. Headship is what we are going to be dealing with here. And it's going to come under another category that you're going to see over here in a in a second. Um, so what what Paul says is that Jesus was equal with the father. He did not think of robbery to be that, but he didn't go about boasting in that. That's verse seven. Verse seven gives us what is called the kenosis doctrine or the teaching of Christ's humility of expression. But he made himself of no what? Right. He did not go about demonstrating and trying to prove to people that he was God. Because if he did, he would have to do those kinds of things that would have been extraordinary, extra um, special, what we would call non-communicable qualities of God or attributes of God, like going around and, and making the sun darken in the middle of the day or, 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 or dividing the Jordan River uh, or, or, or decreeing everybody to come up out of the graves. He could have done stuff like that as God. He did not do that because he didn't come to do that. 
He came to demonstrate his messiahship, but that's something slightly different than trying to demonstrate his deity. So the word Christ is the New Testament form of the word Messiah. Messiah, all right? Missa. Missa is anointing. So when we go Messiah, we're talking about the anointed one. That's the same as the New Testament Christos. So I want you to get that. And so Jesus did come to fulfill all the scriptures pointing to the work of Messiah, which would be um, largely in the category of dealing with our plight as human beings. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. But this is the way Christ showed up. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a what? Not a king, but a servant. That's the exact opposite. So he was counterintuitive to his own right. His right as a king was clear. He spoke of his own kingdom. He says, if, if, my, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So he was a king, but he didn't come to assert his kingship. And he was made in the likeness of what? Right. This is the most radical contrast you can have. Having the nature of God, but bearing the qualities of men. That is a real tension right there. Because you're going from the highest of uh, species to the lowest of species. OK, you've gone from being God to being man, which is a hard concept for people to embrace as well. But this is what we call uh, incarnational theology, assuming a human nature. We'll leave that alone for now. So the essence of that, however, is the mind of Christ is not one where he goes around asserting his privileges, asserting his power, asserting his authority, and neither should Christians. So like, even though we are sons and daughters of God, our job is not to go around and convince people of that capacity. Or that position. That's not your role. Your role is not to intimidate people because you have a relationship with God. Your job is to be a servant like Christ was. To exercise a quality of humility as Christ did. And and by that, you are allowing God to work through you to manifest his own glory so that he actually gets the honor out of the unique and special things that show up in your life. That makes sense, right? So when special things show up in your life, we can go, that's God working through me. That's not me by myself. And so that's the thinking. Then Paul said over in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my conduct. And this is where you and I learned he knew what it meant to please all men. This is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 33. Let's just read it again. And I'm going to once again define pleasing for you. And we can talk about that in the Q&A. Notice what it says. Even as I please all men in all things, how? Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many in order that they may be what? All right. So for Paul, he was willing to expenditure his life, to give his life away, in order that men might be saved. Now, that's the modifier to the term pleasing. In other words, Paul was not a man pleaser in the secular sense of seeking to please men and bring men into a kind of happiness because Paul is a genie, rub him and he'll give you whatever you wish. That wasn't what that means. What that means is that he actually understood human need. And we talked about this a week ago. The Apostle Paul understood human need and you and I should, too. And human need is fundamentally that we need to get right with God. So um, if, in fact, 
the greatest need that human beings have is to be right with God. Our goal is to position ourselves where we can engage men and women to the point that they come to discover that. And when they come to be persuaded that they need God, they will agree with us. Remember, I told you the word pleasing there means to come into agreement with. To come into agreement with, even as I seek to bring men and women into agreement with me, into agreement with my worldview, into agreement with my assignment. You guys will remember this is Acts 25. He's before King Agrippa and King Agrippa is this is his second uh, indictment <clears throat> by the Jews. And King Agrippa is on his on the edge of his seat listening to Paul. And Paul is laying out the history of Jesus. He's laying out the persecution, laying out the resurrection. And Agrippa is leaning in and he says to the apostle Paul, Paul, you almost have persuaded me to become a Christian. That's what I'm talking about. So the life should be lived in such a way as that it brings men and women to the edge of wanting Christ. That's what it means. Are you, is that making some sense? Right. That's what I'm trying to get across. So think about Paul's self-reflection, how he grew in understanding his calling. And this would be the same thing for you and me. It doesn't matter what gifts you have. Those gifts can be across a plethora of, um, of callings and, uh, and, and assignments. If God is working in you and working in me, what they should do is call men to a greater awareness and to a greater level of accountability before God. Right. Because, I mean, if men are in darkness, the first thing we want is for the lights to be cut on. Once the lights are cut on, we got to negotiate the um, what we would expect to be the conflict, the tension, the uh, the battle that rages when the lights are on and you begin to see yourself for what you are. We have to then be wise as serpents, gentle as does, do we not? We have to be ready to go twain with people. If they smite us on the cheek, metaphorically, we give them another one because we're understanding they're struggling with a revelation of themselves and they're struggling with the implications of their accountability before God. And the easiest person to attack since they can't get to God is going to be you. So the believer is bearing under those kind of uncomfortable uh, uh, implications. What we're talking about is breaking people's framing, their false assertions of what they think they are. Uh, light shining into darkness breaks frames. It brings people into a crisis state. It's an internal crisis of awareness. And that's the spirit of God working if he's working through us to that end. So we want to know that that's what is meant by Paul saying, follow me. And what that means is we would have to take up his traditions. We saw this in First Corinthians chapter four, verse 16 and 17 to reiterate, bringing it up. First Corinthians four, 16. This is what the apostle says. Wherefore, I beseech you be what? Followers of me. He just said that six chapters earlier. Now he's saying it again, isn't he? Now, notice what he says in verse 17, as he explains, for this cause I've sent to you Timotheus, who is my beloved son. What does that mean? The father-son relationship means that T Timothy has taken on significant qualities after the apostle Paul for Paul to be able to call Timothy his son. If Timothy is his son, then when Timothy goes to different communities, people who know Paul will see Paul in Timothy. All right. Just letting you know that. OK. And this is why he says, and he's faithful in the Lord 
who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ. Absolutely. As Paul brought people into remembrance of the ways of Christ. So Timothy is bringing people into the ways of Paul, which be in Christ. Right. As I teach everywhere in every church. So, you and I know that this is a, a tradition. This is a paradosis. This is the way the church is supposed to function in terms of discipleship. Point number two in our outline for which I extol and laud you. That's verse two in our outline. Now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I've delivered them unto you. So we picked up in point number two. Um, how that Paul is now praising them. And just look at the uh, title of point number two. I laud you. I praise you. I boast in you. I tell people about you. This is the way we closed last time. I talked to you about how the Apostle Paul, while he's admonishing the church at Corinth for many things, and we haven't finished yet with all of the corrections, they're actually going to intensify in terms of their, their condemnation. Nevertheless, there's still an election according to God's mercy in the church at Corinth. They're real believers. They're real believers in the church at Corinth of whom he loves. This is why under sub point A, I say what? Some of you are holding to what I've taught you. You guys see that? Some of you are holding to what I taught you. Sub point B, continue to hold fast, grasp and guard. And that is the essence of what he's saying uh, in, in verse Uh, two of our texts. And I said, they are grasping the what? The tassel, the tassel, the hinges. What does that mean? That means they've started practicing what scripture teaches, having been taught by Paul well to remember the traditions that were passed to him. See, Paul is actually bringing to the church new revelation around what the Old Testament scriptures have taught concerning Christ. They aren't all written down at the moment that Paul is talking, but eventually they get written down. They get passed around. But it started in what is called the paradoses or traditions, speaking and preaching. And this is what Christ said in Acts chapter. I mean, in uh, John 17, look at verse 19, I think John 17, 19. Listen to what he says. And for their sake, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Let's see, verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through what? Their words. So it's a message passed from Christ to the apostles and to the people of God. Did that make sense? Here in this verse, this is not this is not graphe paradosis. This is not a letter being passed. This is words. So the gospel comes in words. It's a dialogue. It's a conversation. It's a euangelion. It's good news. So you don't have Christ writing at all. He never wrote. Okay, he spoke. The apostles wrote when it was time to write, but mostly guess what they were doing? Proclaiming. That's right. It's called the charigma. The charigma is the proclaiming. Euangelion is the content. Okay, so the word got spread quickly and people heard it and 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 that word attached themselves to them. This is Paul's ways. And so what he's saying to the church for which I extol and laud you, you are doing. I love that. Now, point number three is where we're going to move into our categories. If you have your outline, we uh, we pick this up on Friday. Be sure about this reality. And this reality is going to constitute verses three through nine. You guys got that? 
All right. So under be sure about this reality, the word that I want you to actually understand is hierarchy and headship. Those are the two words, hierarchy and headship, because that's what Paul is about to explain. Be sure of this. And then I'm using the word reality, which is a word in the Greek ontos, from which we get the term uh, ontology. Uh, Verily, verily is the way Jesus used the term truly, truly. So when we use the idea of ontology, what we're talking about is what a thing is according to its nature. Now, what I'm about to talk about is extremely important. So I'm going to make sure I slow it down as we deal with the categories. And then we can talk about it in Q&A fashion. What the Apostle Paul is about to set forth is a theologically redemptive, creative, ecclesiological witness of reality from God to earth. He's about to lay out four categories, theology and then a a subcategory in theology, redemption. And then from a, a redemptive theological framework, he's going to talk about the design of creation. And we're getting ready to see that. I'm going to put it together. And creation was designed to manifest God's glory theologically and redemptively. And then within that creation framework, there's a mandate for mankind to actually bear record to that theological redemptive framework manifested in the father and the son through families in the context of churches. And then there's going to be two other categories that are going to emerge out of that. And I'm getting ready to read that now. And I want you to see it for yourself and we'll build this out and we can have the conversation. So when he says verse three, but I would have you to know. Remember what I told you about that? I would have you to be certain. This is what we would call epistemology. I would have you to be able to stand on this. Episteme, to stand on and to actually believe it up and out of yourself. Histemi is our Greek term for standing. Epe is a preposition that means to be around or to emerge. It's an emergent property, okay? Epistemology is how we know what we know, okay? So to have an epistemic viewpoint is to have a viewpoint of some kind of certainty about what you're doing. And when I talked to you about this, I'm coming from the phrase, but I would have you what? No, I would have you know. Now, this is in antithesis to what he said in chapter 10, verse one. And he said all over the New Testament, brethren, I would have you not to be ignorant. So to know is to not be what? Right. So agnosticism is the term agnoe in uh, first Corinthians 10, one in first Corinthians 11, verse three. It is the term we do a we don't. It is a derivative of the Greek term gnosis to know. Okay, you got to really know the technicalities of Greek grammar to get this. Whenever the scriptures is saying that we have an understanding When we have an understanding, it means that we have been furnished with enough data to bring us into a position of conviction that the thing we are considering is true. That's called an understanding. Did that make some sense? And so it is a an engagement with information, an engagement with data. And that data brings you into a concrete settling that the thing is so. Hebrews chapter 11, verse uh, Verse uh, four, let's see, Hebrews 11, four, uh, go back to um, verse, uh, verse, 
Hebrews 11, verse 3. Let me see. Now, this is the definition. No, it's Hebrews 11, 2. Hebrews, here it is. So start at verse 2. Let me see. Hebrews 11, 2. Yeah, for by faith, the elders obtained a good report. That means they were pleasing to God. Now, look at verse 3. Now, here's what the writer to the Hebrew does in the same way in which we're about to deal with it in the book of Corinthians. Here's what he says. Now, I want you to get it. He says, now, through what? Faith. Pistis, persuasion. That's what the word means. Being persuaded. Pistis in its root form means to have been convinced of something. All right. This is extremely important for you to get. Uh, Pistuo is the term for believing. Pistis is the term faith. Faith is the noun form of the verb believing. So if I'm believing something, I am being persuaded of it. Am I not? Keep it simple. Don't don't overwork this. Do not overwork this because everybody has some kind of system of believing. We're all being persuaded of something. Children are persuaded, are they not? Right. You can't even do life without a system of persuasion. So I, I want you to not overwork this. Even if the object of your persuasion is not true, you can believe in something that's not right. Your believing mechanism is still a legitimate mechanism. The problem is the object of your faith. Right. So we're all being persuaded one way or the other. So when the writer to the Hebrew says through faith, we what? We acquire our epistemology. We acquire our epistemology. See, To be persuaded is to be brought to a place of settled understanding of a certain thing. This is what we believe. Credo in the Latin, I believe. I believe. Why? Because there's been enough data given to me that has allowed me to formulate a conclusion about the topic in view. Now, notice what the the writer says. He says Christians are persuaded by or via or through the mechanism of faith. Got that? Now, notice what he says. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now, that's where we left off at. And what I share with you is that that statement right there not only gives us the um, the process of persuasion, it also gives us the resources by which that persuasion came. Right. So the persuasion led to a settled conviction of a kind of understanding of what's going on. This is what we're going to call our worldview, our epistemological certainty. That persuasion came by the word of God. Do you see it? Look at it again. We, through faith, understand that the worlds were framed by the what? Right. So the immediate subject under consideration is the world. And the means by which the world was brought into existence is the word. Do you see it? And we believe this because we are persuaded. What are we persuaded by? The word. That the worlds were brought and framed and organized and structured intellectually, rationally, propositionally, powerfully, coherently. That's what framed means. Framed is intelligent. Did that follow? It's important to get. And then I share with you that what he's doing is forcing us to actually find out what that criterion was. And I took you to Psalm 33, didn't we? Psalm 33, verse six or seven. Look at it and see if this helps you, because this is something for us to grasp. Yes. 
by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Is that what it says? So now, now stop right there. This is really simple. Apart from faith, that proposition means nothing. But if I am under a process of persuasion, that proposition tells me how the worlds were made. Is that right? So I'm like, Lord, how did you create this vast galaxy and, and gazillions of galaxies as we are considering them with our finite mind? How did you do that? He says, by my word. That's what he says. Is that what it says? Now, I actually know that there are 10, 12 other passages which say the same thing in different ways. Do you? Because if you do, then you know why the Hebrew writer says, by faith, we believe that the worlds were framed by ex nihilo. Right. This is why John says in John 1, what in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And there was nothing that was made that the word did not make. Right. And that's why Genesis one says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that doesn't tell us anything but who verse one tells us who verse two and three tells us how. Psalm 33, 6 tells us how God spoke it into existence. Did that make some sense? God spoke it into existence. And here is where you and I are about to deal with the five categories here. It is this God and this Christ that brought it into existence. We just quoted John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word. Who is the word? Christ. Right. And the word was with God. Who is the God that we're talking about? the father. That's the father and son paradigm, isn't it? In the beginning, the father and the son created everything. And there was nothing made that the father and the son didn't make. You guys see that? This is one species. This is one genus. There's nothing, there's nothing, um, there's nothing else here. This is God, the father and God, the son. The Holy Spirit is the one that's informing us. He's the one doing the talking. The only way we know about these two is because of the third person. And we can easily affirm in the book of Psalms and in the book of Job as well. By the spirit of the Lord were the heavens garnished. Do we know the third person was involved, right? We know it according to the Genesis narrative, right? And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep, brought order out of chaos, separated darkness from light, established the waters above from the waters below. Am I making some sense? So you have a triune operation engaged in the creation process. You would agree with that. But you're agreeing because you're under persuasion. And you are under persuasion because the word of God has brought you into contact, contact with those propositional ideas. Am I making some sense? All right. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to build a point here to work our way down. All things were made by him and without him, nothing was made that was made. I, that's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? All right. So that makes him God. So as we're looking at uh, point number three, be sure about this reality. And this will be headship. And another word that I'm going to deal with now, go back with me to our text. I want to look at our text. I want to make some movement now as I begin to talk to you. I'm very persuaded that this will retain with many of you and help you um, as you think things through. As even though I know that I'm actually taking you through what is called theology proper in most people's minds are not ready for these things, even though they are professing Christians. Uh, theology around who God is should be one of the most interesting, interesting things in your life. Right. It should be one of the most interesting things in your life. Who is God? 
should be one of the most interesting things in your life for all kinds of reasons, just philosophically and logically speaking. They should be, but certainly from a theological standpoint, and this is eternal life, John 17, 3, that you might know him. That's why, that's why in knowing God, salvation is obtained. That's why it's important, right? That you might know him and his only begotten son whom he has sent. This is so very clear. So notice what is about to be said. Let's deal with Paul's subject matter now. And uh, we're going to make our way through. I would have you to know that the head of every man is who? So we're getting ready to deal with headship. I want you to understand that headship is really the subject matter here. Headship and headship is proceeding as a subcategory out of the hierarchical rule of God. Does that make sense? God rules. And because he rules, he is head over everything, is he not? But now headship is about to be explained by Paul from the ground up. From the ground up, headship is about to be explained from the ground up to the heavens. So view it from the earth to the heavens. Headship is about to be explained. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the what? So headship is still inherent here, is it not? The primary subject is headship. And what it is, is headship over something. First, Christ is head over the man. Secondly, the man is head over the. Now, notice what he goes on to say. And the head of Christ is who? So this is what we mean by hierarchy. You guys got the hierarchy? Because we are dealing with two species. The species is God himself. And then the species is what? Man and what? Woman. That's your second category. This is a second species. Okay, the 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 distinction between man and woman is that man and woman are not themselves. What God. But because Christ is involved in the equation, you see my little red arrow here going over here. It's connected to Christ at the level of Christ, assuming what our human nature. So first we're dealing with theology, are we not? We're dealing with theology. Theology is the study of who? And now, by inference, we are dealing with what I stated earlier, redemption, right? We're dealing with redemption. Why is that? Because Christ has now been brought into the equation. Redemption at the level of incarnation. If Christ does not assume a human nature, then Christ remains a categorical species totally different than mankind. Would you agree? Do you then understand how that man and woman has its fundamental purpose in Christ even before they came into being? Do you guys see that? Right. So the categories are important. Now, this is really important. So theology is about God. Redemption is about God and mankind in the person of Christ. This is why your Bible would say in Ephesians chapter three, verse nine. And we want to see that briefly before I continue to build what I'm going to tell you is a taxis in a moment, a taxonomical structure, an order of, 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 of relationship between God and man. Notice what the text says. Uh, the goal of the ministry of the Apostle Paul is to make all men to see what the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in what? Who created, this is God, God the Father, who created all things by who? Jesus Christ. Is that our first category up here? Is that our first category? 
I just want you to get it and anchor it down. All right. Get it and anchor it. This here is going on in the heavens before anything is created. There's a relationship between the father and the son who then, based upon a plan that they had hidden themselves, created everything. Is that what this verse is saying? I want you to get that. Here's what the verse is saying. Creation was brought into existence in order to reveal who God is and to reveal who God is in the person of Christ. Creation was brought into existence to be a revelational reflection of the will of God and the redemption of Jesus. Everything was made by him and for him. In other words, God didn't make creation for its own purpose. He didn't just create something and say, go ahead on, go go on, go on with your bad self. No, creation is a coextensive manifestation of God's will and purpose. And it is continually engaged in its own existence by God upholding it. So creation is made by God. You agree with that? Creation is sustained by God. Would you agree with that? Creation is under a process of redemption and salvation. You would agree with that. And it's also headed towards a consummation. You would agree with that. Right. And this is why we're going where we're going. So in the um, categories that we're dealing with here, God and Christ in their own space. And you'll notice I'll have this in in, in, in purple, if you will, these are the categories. God has their own category. Man and woman have their own category. And what Paul is about to argue is man and woman do not get to define themselves apart from God in Christ. You keeping up with me? So follow me because I'm going to make our way all the way down. I want you to get it. So now look at what he says. He says in verse three, uh, verse four, I'm sorry. This is interesting. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his what? Now, remember what he said. Now, this is Paul's, this is Paul's lock-tight, airtight, coherent logic. This is called a syllogistic argument he's about to build. There is a human species. That human species is made by God. That human species is in relationship with God by virtue of a system of headship. Does that follow? Of course it does. Now, here's what he's going to say. He's going to say every man, he's going back to man. Now, he started off with man, didn't he? Verse three starts off with the man, not the woman. Y'all keeping up with me? You know your Bibles, right? So, you know, when God created male and female in the beginning, he created man first. Is that what your Bible says? So is Paul following an inspirational development articulation of the creation narrative? So I want you to catch this because it has everything to do with where you live right now. Everything to do with where you live right now. So what Paul is saying is the man, the anir, this here is the uh, uh, human species called mankind, not the female, anir. This is man. This is not woman in contradistinction to woman. Woman is ganai, okay, from which we get the term gynecology. That's female species. When we use the term anthropology, we're talking about human beings. When we use the term anir, we're talking about male species. What is a man? Are y'all keeping up with me? And when we go, what is a woman? We are making a categorical distinction between the man and the woman because God did. Did he not? 
Right. So now Paul is going back to the Anir. He's not dealing with mankind in general. He's dealing with the categories. This is important. He's dealing with the males. And guess what he said? The male must not cover his head. Is that what he says? All right. It's important for you to get that. Every man praying and prophesying. So I'm going to help you to build uh, build two other subcategories in your space. And I'm going to show you why here in a moment. Uh, The apostle has just introduced to us the function of the man as he was made by God. One is he's called to pray. Man was created to pray. That presupposes a relationship with God. The other thing that man is called to do is prophesy. Is that what it says? Y'all keeping up with me? Didn't I tell you that there are two major objectives and purposes for the church? Once we fail them, we are no longer the church. The role of the church is prophetic and the role of the church is what? Priestly. The role of the church is to pray and the role of the church is to proclaim God's word. Did that make some sense? That makes sense. And the role of the praying and prophesying person is largely but not exclusively a role of the man. Did y'all get that? Well, that makes sense because when Jesus came as a man, what did he do? He prayed and he what? That's what he did. This is why I'm saying do not define man or woman apart from Christ. You have no legitimate grounds for that. Everything that Christ is in our humanity, we are in him. That's our calling. That's our calling. That's our role. This is what Paul is going to argue. But what he's dealing with now, which is something we are tragically amiss on, is the doctrine of headship. Headship is having a a covering over your head. This is where we're going. It's called covering. It's a covering. Okay, that's what he's dealing with. Notice the next verse. Notice the next verse. But every woman that prayeth or prophesies with her head uncovered, what? Dishonoreth her head. Now, see what Paul is doing? When he takes you back to verse three, he gives you a headship hierarchy. The head of Christ is God. The head of the man is the woman, right? Of the woman is the man. And the head of, of, the head of man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. The man must not have his head covered, but the woman must have her head covered. Is that what the text is saying? All right, we'll deal with it contextually in a moment. But every woman that prayeth or prophesied with her head uncovered does what? Dishonor her head. So now, what is the head in reference to the woman a, a reference to? The man. Does that, does that follow? Right, because the head in reference to the man is who? Christ. So the head in reference to the woman is the man. So we're talking about headship, aren't we? But we're also talking about hierarchy, aren't we? Because Christ is over man and man is over the woman and God is over Christ. So we're getting ready to get into a cultural thing in a moment and we'll be able to you know, shred that in Q&A in a second. But I'm getting ready to lay out for you where we are in our world and why we are dealing with the problems we are. But everyone that prayeth or prophesies without Every woman that prayeth or prophesies without her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were what? Ball-headed. You might as well just put PJ's interpretation. Ball-headed. Naked-headed. 
There's a naked head, a naked headed woman. Now, follow this now. This is important. What I love about the way Paul is unpacking this is he is saying that the woman occupies the position of priesthood as well. And the woman occupies the position of the prophetic role as well. Isn't that what the text said? She has a place in the prophetic role. She has a place in the priestly reconciling role. Did y'all get that? Hurry up and lock that in. Right. She's not sitting on the sideline twiddling her thumbs. She's to be engaged in praying, seeking reconciliation of sinners. She's to be engaged in proclaiming God's word, communicating God's word, cultivating God's word, spreading God's word, teaching God's word. Is she not? Is she not? Absolutely. But she's to do it with a head covering. She's to do it under authority. Watch how this flows out, because it's going to be worth the conversation. Because obviously Paul is actually dealing with a question being brought up in the church. Right. So where, where should women be in the church in relationship to the matter of uh, the distinction between men and women? He's getting ready to explain that as he has done in many other places. He's giving you a formal explanation as to why women need to remain under headship. Notice what it says in verse six. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be what? But if she be ashamed for a woman, but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be what? May I sum it up this way. If there's a woman that wants to be uncovered, she actually wants to be a man. Hurry up and get that. I don't want to waste time tonight. I know it's Friday. I know it's been a long day. This here is transgenderism in its argument. I'm helping you. Right, because the, the distinction between the man and the woman is that the man is uncovered, the woman is covered. Y'all follow? And the woman is craving the position of the man. And what, what Paul is saying by inspiration of the Spirit, he's already told us he's under inspiration. If the woman seeks to have, without distinction, the same qualitative role and position that the man does, she is fundamentally denying the distinction of her position as a woman and wanting to adopt the same capacity, privileges, and expression of the man. Does that make sense? See what I'm getting at? We've been dealing with this since the first century. It's important for you to get. I'm going to go a little deeper, obviously, because there's a lot to be understood here. But I I want you to comprehend it. Verse seven. Verse seven, the apostle says, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head. What is he doing? He's now going back. He's rounding back. He says, I'm returning back to the hierarchy because we're dealing with a taxonomical structure. I'm going back. I'm circling back to the role of the what? That means man has a role and woman has a role. Now, notice what he's about to do with the man who has his head uncovered. It's inferred that his head is uncovered. It's inferred, therefore, that the woman has a covering on her head because she wants to take it off. Paul is saying, no, you can't take it off because if you take it off, you are going to position yourself as if you are a man without distinction. And the man does not get to put one on his head. I'm getting ready to deal with that. 
Because should he put one on his head, he's going to be in the same position as the woman is. Well, listen to it. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much he is the image and glory of God. Do you see it? But the woman is the glory of the man. Do you see what's going on here? So what God is demonstrating is the hierarchy of rule. The hierarchy of rule. Did that follow? The hierarchy of rule. Now, this is not ontological. This is functional. I said rule. This is the hierarchy of authority. This is not ontological. Ontological means nature. That's what ontology means. So I'm going to help you just in case you don't get it. The father is head over Christ, is he not? That does not mean that the father is more than Christ in their natures. Their nature is equal. Did that make some sense? They are equal in nature, distinct in persons and distinct in roles. This is what we call the functional economical trinity. In the same way that the father says in John chapter 10, 30 and 31, my father is greater than I. He's establishing the hierarchical rule of the father over him. Christ obviously is greater than man. So he has hierarchical authority over us. The man functionally is greater than the woman. Now, people can argue, fall out. You can cut yourself in a thousand different pieces. I don't care. You got to deal with history. This history is already. History is so. Is history clear? All right. So, I mean, you know, whatever's going to happen tomorrow with transhumanism and folks getting chopped up and, and robot pox parts and, and lipid nanoparticles everywhere and, and artificial intelligence integrating into us. That's a whole nother species. We can talk about it. Won't, won't happen today. That's going to be a wild thing. Androgyny is on the way. And part of its argument started here. I'm making some sense, right? All right, so I want to drill into this a little bit more. For the man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. And this will make no sense to a secular person who doesn't understand the taxonomical order of creation. You guys got that? So I want to, I want to teach you another theological term. People are always blaming grace for being so technical. So this, you, you guys are using all those big words over there. Taxonomy. Taxonomy. This ain't about taxes. <laughs> Taxonomy is a discipline in linguistics that constitutes structure and order. But all structure and all order has its derivatives from the God who is a God of order. The devil engages in confusion and chaos. But taxonomical order comes from God. I'm getting ready to build that in. So I want to I start there and show you how the structure from the ground up is man, woman, Christ, God. That's how God made everything in the beginning. If you believe Genesis chapter 1, 26, 27, chapter 2, verse 7, and then chapter 2, verse 22 and 20, 24, right? He made man first, then the woman. He brought them together and they replicate the species. You agree with that? All right. So what we're dealing with is an order of structure here. Look at verse eight and nine. 
Let me see if I can. For the man is not of the woman. Do you guys see that? This is not saying that they are not equal in nature. They are. Man carries the same genetic traits that a woman does, but our genetic traits are differentiated at the chromosomal level to make a distinction between men and women. You would agree with that? You would agree with that, right? X, 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 Y's and then some anomalies. But fundamentally, we are the same species differentiated by a few chromosomes to make the difference between the man and the woman. You agree with that? Right. Only fools don't. And we got a bunch of fools today. But notice the framing, because it's important to know for the man is not of. You see that preposition of is not of. This is what we call the genitive form of a preposition, which means the man is not owned. The man does not derive from. He does not have his origin in the woman. The woman has her origin in the man. This is this here is a reference to the creation order. In the beginning, God made them male and female in the image of God made he them. Right. Genesis 1, 27, 28. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is out of proceeding from having her origin in and extending coextensively of the man. Is that true? Right. These are the arguments that we're dealing with everywhere on the planet today. And, and, and a lot of people are losing those arguments because they're not actually believing the scriptures. You guys are being taught point blank today what scripture says about the origin of men and women with clarity. So we got a little work to do here for the man is not out of the woman as originating from her and her being the grounds of his being. But the woman is out of the man as originating in him, having her grounds in his nature. And this is why God put Adam to sleep and took from his side a rib and built him a woman and brought her to him. And he immediately recognized her as his counterpart. That means she was everything that he is, with the exception of being the alternate of him at the gender level. Does that make some sense? Right. He had no problem calling her Isha. He is Ish, man. She is Isha, female. It's really simple in the grammar. Look at verse nine, because uh, I think I want to be I got a few more verses. Neither was the man created for. Now, this here is also the um, utilitarian role. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman what? Right. This is where men and women have skid into all kinds of chaos today. Right there. This is where most women in our churches are in error right now, attitudinally and functionally. Do you see that in total error against God? Many are in this era right here. The man was neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. It takes a radical framing of the mind and allegiance to God. Remember, we were talking earlier that we have the mind of Christ. That's what it would take for a woman to own why God made her in relationship to covenant relationship. That's what it would take. It would take you being persuaded that God made you for a man. Because where we are today is this, this, the, the, the inherent significance and meaning and implication of this verse does not exist anywhere in dialogue as an authoritative premise for why woman was created. You see that, don't you? No, don't. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 11 doesn't even exist, even in the church. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. That's powerful. That's powerful. 
Let me make an argument on the syllogism of our taxa, taxon, taxonomy. Because we have God in Christ, we have men and women. What we're about to have here now is family, obviously, right? And the church. We can really call this the family of God. Does that make sense? Right, because the church is made up of men and women. The church should be made up of redeemed men and women. Men and women who think God's thoughts after him, men and women who own the creation narrative as given to them by God. Men and women who embrace the creation mandate, right? And the creation mandate is to do what? Men and women was to do what? Go forth and replenish. So they were to replenish as a family and if they became collective enough or large enough, they would end up being an ecclesia. This is the other aspect of the doctrine that you and I are now working through, the ecclesia. So you have theology. A category of theology is redemption. Another category of theology is the creation mandate. Go forth and multiply. Another category of this theology is ecclesia, the church, the called out ones. You can see that, right? Of course. Of course. Didn't God always envision humanity being his church? Of course. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Ephesians 4, I'm going to go back. I'm sorry, Ephesians 3, 14. And then 15. Ephesians 3, 4. For this cause I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is Paul. Now, who is he bowing to? The Father, Pater. That's God. Y'all got that? So the man, Paul, is bowing to the father, is he not? He's owned by the son. He's owned by Messiah, but he's bowing to the father because he knows his relationship to the father through the son is that he is a son of the living God. And if he's bowing the knee, guess what Paul is doing? He's praying, right? We know he's preaching, but he's praying too. So he's holding those roles in tension because of who he is in Christ, right? He can pray to the Father. Now notice, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he calls him his Father through Christ. So he does not, Paul does not take a direct access to the Father. His access to the Father is through who? Y'all got that? This is why Jesus said in John chapter 14, 6, no one comes unto the Father but through me. Now, every believer knows to do that, do we not? We know not to pray to the Father apart from the Son. We know that. We know that. And I'm not talking on the technical level of just talking to Daddy, but the notion that a person can have a relationship with God without the Son, that's a, that's a battle call. That's a, that's a warfare. You're waging war against God. Now, notice what it says. For this cause I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. Of whom the whole family. Do you see it? Now, what does Paul envision? He envisions a redeemed people in Christ as the family of God. Do you guys see that? That's what you and I are working through with the Old Testament. The Jewish people were that model, were they not? Jehovah called them out to be his bride, did he not? He called them out to be his people. Were they not called to be a kingdom? Were they not called to be a priesthood? That's Exodus 19. Remember, the Old Testament foreshadows the new. Am I making some sense? So the same thing that Israel was called to, the church is called to now, is it not? 
And the mediator of both the old and the new is Jesus, is he not? So here we have of the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That, that's important for us to capture. Go back to he, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Let's look again then at verse, uh, uh, verse, um, verse 9 through 11, because I want to make sure we capture this before we go into deeper analysis. So now notice what, what Paul says. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman was what? Created for the man. Until she captures that, she will be captivated by this world system and made to be in hostility with the man. You guys understand that? Until she captures that she was created by God for the man, she will be in hostility to God and to mankind and even to her own female sisters. Until she understands that. Verse 10, you can, you can we go into Q&A in a moment. For this, listen carefully. For this cause ought the woman have what? Authority. Exousia. Exousia over her what? Right. Now, here's the reason why man was made first, then the woman. Here's the reason why we were at verse four all the way to verse uh, 10 is an argument of the hierarchy of the relationship between the man and the woman. Do you agree with that? Paul has argued that he was first, that she was second, that she was out of him. He was not out of her, that she was made for him. He was not made for her. This is not an egalitarian argument. You guys do know what egalitarianism is. It's the big old assumption that the only kind of dialogue I want to have when it comes to my counterpart is that we're equal. Sure, you're equal, but you're distinct. And that distinction is understood in terms of hierarchical structure because there's a hierarchy from God all the way down to man. Right. This is what Paul is arguing for this cause ought the woman to have what over her head? Because of what? The angels. Whoa. Here we go. So this is the next category that I want you to capture, because if our taxonomy is right, that's our word, taxonomy. If our taxonomy is right, I'm gonna, can I build this out right quick? I want you to get this. If our, if our order of relationship structurally is right, the obedience of the family church, the man-woman to Christ and God is a testimony to the angels. Colossians chapter three, verse five and six. I want you to hear it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight the meaning of this verse so you can see it. Mortified, therefore, um, let me see, is this the one that I want? Let me see. Look at verse six. Give me verse six. No. Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, verse five. Colossians chapter one, verse five. Uh, Give me Colossians chapter one, six. No, it's not. It's Colossians two. Colossians two, five. Colossians two, five. Yeah, here it is. For though I be absent in the flesh, this is Paul talking to the church at Colossae. Colossae, like Ephesus, was in the regions of Asia Minor. Okay, that's up in the um, in in the area of Asia as we're moving towards uh, Corinth and and Athens. This is Asia Minor. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, joined and beholding your what? Joined and beholding your what? Join and beholding your taxonomical structure. Are you guys keeping up with me? Now, I want you to capture this. Now, Paul is a type of Christ here, is he not? Because what does he say? I'm absent in the body. 
I'm present in the spirit. Is Christ among us? But is he also absent? Right. Christ is in glory, but his spirit is present. And Christ is observing everything because lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. Right. So what is Paul saying to them? His joy is in his observation of their chaos. Of their confusion. Of their woke ideology. Of their conflation of male and female to no distinction. Of their transhumanism. You see what I'm getting at? He says order. The taxonomical structure. The order. Now I want you to capture the two words. I'm going to press them home. He says, I am joined and beholding in your order and the steadfastness of your faith. Where? Paul would not be saying that about most churches in America today. You keeping up with me? Because most churches don't walk in order. He says, I'm beholding your order. You know what he's saying? I'm beholding how God is keeping you operating according to the taxonomical structure. I'm seeing how God is causing you to stay steadfast in your knowledge of Christ and in your witness of Christ by the way you behave. Does that make some sense? Two words, order, taxonomical structure. Order, order, order. And then steadfastness. You see that word steadfastness? The root of that word steadfastness is where we get the term histamine. Our standing from which we get our epistemological certainty. The reason I can be steadfast is because I am certain of the truth. So if I have an epistemology that allows me to argue for God made the heavens and the earth. Christ is the mediator between God and man. Christ is the means by which the father created everything. Redemption is the aim and goal for humanity. Consummation of creation will be that God will be glorified in all things. Christ will bring the kingdom to the father and consummate it when he comes finally. That's called an epistemic certainty because I'm persuaded by God's word. Did that make some sense? Now, if I'm not persuaded by God's word, I can be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and moved from my position that I've held for many decades. Well, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure that God created man first. I think he created the woman first because there's a cell in the woman that basically said she was first before the man. That's a lie from hell. Even though our African brothers have bought into it, we have vanquished that through Fundamental science many times. You'll never find the first woman in the universe. You'll never find her. It'll never be found. So I love those arguments when they emerge because they become blatant, forked tongue arguments against scripture. Does that make some sense? They become a challenge for you, particularly you African-American folks that, you know, have a propensity towards black doctrine. Because in black doctrine, they have the woman being God and creating everything. All right, so now just throw your Bible away. And then they're telling you you can still be Christian. Throw your Bible away. You have to throw your Bible away. If you buy into that false notion of the Eve gene, you have to throw your Bible away. You do know that, right? All right, so I'm just kind of letting you know that when you hear something that blatantly opposes the tenor of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you know that the devil is speaking, right? He's a liar and the truth is not in him. He never, ever spoke the truth because it's not in him. So immediately when I hear those things, I laugh. I say, ah, there he is again. He's so obvious. And then when you do enough research, you come to understand that that was nothing but a myth. 
But many people fall into it because many people are, we are far more inclined to falsehood and error than we are the truth. It takes grace for you to believe the truth. It takes grace because the truth is never in the, in the company of the majority. It's always in the company of a select people that are seriously committed to his truth claims, even at a cost. Here it is. Watch this. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, joining and beholding your order and steadfastness of faith in Christ. This is beautiful because if you look at verse six and seven, here's the reason why. Give me a little bit more time. As you have therefore received Jesus Christ, the Lord. So what? That's our first point in our outline. Follow me as I follow Christ. As you have so received the Lord Jesus Christ, walk in him. Right. Notice what he says in verse seven. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been what? Abounding therein with thanksgiving. In other words, if you continue to root and ground yourself, your epistemological certainty will grow. You will be more and more certain that you are a child of God. If you are my disciple, you will continue in the truth and the truth will continue to liberate you because you will know the truth and it will set you free. Did that make some sense? Right. And you you can't have that certainty where you are not continuing in the word of God. This is why a lot of people are all over the ice. They don't even have skates because they don't continue in God's word. Now, please listen to me. You can't be firm in God where you are not committed to the discipline of sound exegetical study of scripture. You cannot be. You are already predisposing yourself to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Why? Because your feet are not solid enough to deal with ice without divine ice skates to give you a grip into that ice so that you can stand. It's not possible. This is why you and I are seeing all kind of wild apostate expressions on all kind of people's parts today. Yesterday, they were believers. Today, they're all over the place. How did that happen? They were lying about being committed to God's word. They were not serious about studying God's word. Thy truth have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right? So it's really important to understand that, you know, what we are in private is what we really are. And, and, and God always makes that, makes that very plain to us. Whatever is done in the dark, it'll come to the light. So if men and women are not digging deep, grounding deep, seeking to anchor deep by the repeated truth claims of God's word, allowing you to reevaluate constantly. Do I know what I know what I know? Do I really know that? Do I have an understanding of that? Am I solid enough to be able to defend it? And here's how you know you're shaky, because you may have a position, but you don't want nobody to challenge you on it because you can't defend it. Am I making some sense? All right. Okay. so this is now. Now, again, I want to show you a couple other verses because Paul uses this term for order taxonomy. That's our word taxios. It's in first Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. Give me a few more minutes. We'll do some Q&A. First Corinthians 1440. Here it is. Let all things be done decently and in what? That's our word. You got it. Every church is called to walk in order. Every church is to walk in a taxonomical structure. Every body of Christ is called to avoid chaos and confusion, babbling and foolishness. 
The church is not to participate in the babbling foolishness that you have seen the Western church engage in for the last 40 years. I was watching something. I'm not going to name names because I don't want you to be distracted because it does not matter if you name names. Only thing that matters is their fruit. You shall know them by their fruits. You shall know men and women by their fruits. It's amazing where you see people are today in the Christian religion. It's amazing what you see in the Gen Zer generation of Christian expression today. It's as far off the course as anything could be. It is as radically secular as anything could be. It is me-oriented, self-centered. It is narcissistic. It's so Christless, so diminished in sound propositional truth as anything could be. Am I making some sense? When you stand back objectively and see the smoke and mirrors and, and the arrogance and the pompousness and the mimicking and aping of our secular culture in our present youthful church, you go, Christ is not in that. Did you hear what I just stated? Christ could not be in that. And you could tell because they don't have a sound enough theology to guard against unholiness and vileness and perversion that ends up emerging out of their character as they embrace the unregenerate world that we know does not only not know God, it doesn't love him and it doesn't love his truth and it quickly mocks Christ. There's a one brother I'm like... I. I knew he was dealing with some ambiguity. He's been around for a long time in the music industry. And then when I heard a lyric that he quoted just a couple of days ago, and I haven't been keeping up with him for about 10, 12, 15 years. And he's a little younger than me, but I'm like, there it is. A little leaven. Leaven's the lump. And now he's gone because he loved the limelight of the secular world. And now his mouth is wide open in the subjugating of Christ to the goat worship. You guys know what the goat is. Okay, it's very clear. And I'm like, whoa, explicit. But that's what Jesus says. He says they, 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 they will be, the way he put it in, in, in Paul's mouth in First uh, Timothy chapter three, around verse 12, he says, but as Jonas and John Brett's were exposed, these two will also be exposed. It's just a matter of time. They too will be exposed. Now, they're not exposed explicitly. They're exposed through discernment. Men and women have to be able to discern where they have abandoned allegiance to Christ. Otherwise, like all of the non-discerning Christians, you know, he's definitely a a, a Christian because he's constantly talking about Jesus. But worshiping Bonafide, okay? Explicitly. All right. So this is where Paul is laying out the order thing. And the order thing has to do with, I got one more thing we've definitely got to talk about. Let me see here is another portion of scripture that I want us to look at. And this would be uh, Luke's gospel, chapter one, verse eight. I'm just going to give you a structural paradigm. And this is in the ministry in the temple. And the, uh, and the priesthood, the, the priests were to worship by course. That's our term, taxis, by course, by order. Okay, two priests per month. Okay, two families per month. And whenever your your family time was up, you were to worship. All right. You were to serve in the temple. And then your time is up. Another family serves and you're all either Levitical or ironic. Okay, we've already dealt with that. We'll pick that up again on Sunday. uh, Lord willing. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office, this is the father of John the Baptist before God in the what order of his what? 
Like, uh, he couldn't say, man, can I jump in there next month? I, I need to take a break. I wonder, can I come in on, the, on, on May 16th through 20th? Can I do that? No, he would have been out of what? Order. Right, there's an order. There's an order and there's a structure and there's a reason for it. God has a purpose for it. And I just showed that to you in 1 Corinthians 14, 40. And when we get to four, chapter 14, we'll know that Paul is shutting down all of the chaos of babbling tongues and women preachers and all of the other chaos that showed up in 1 Corinthians 14. You guys do know that. That's what he's going to clamp down. That's where he's headed now. That's why he's starting with the women. Really interesting. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11 and let's deal with this briefly. Because here's something really insightful. If you guys get it, that we're dealing with headship. To not have a head over you is to not have a what? A covering. Y'all got that? So taxis is about an order. And it's about covering. Because Jesus has a covering, right? Who is that? God the Father. That's what our text said. The man has a covering. Who is that? Christ. The woman has a covering. Who is that? Children have covering. Who is that? And the church of God becomes a family of God under the covering of Christ and God the Father as well. And we don't break that pattern. We don't break that pattern. The family is made up of men and women, therefore children, under the authority of Christ and God by his spirit. Does that make some sense? Right. So now notice this. For this cause ought the man, ought the woman to have authority on her head because of the what? Now, why the angels? Because the angels operate under covering. The angels operate under covering. Isaiah chapter six, verse one, two and three. Listen to it carefully. You think the angels get to just hang out in heaven and willy nilly run up up on God? Listen to it. And you and I have already talked about the structure of angels, have we not? I talked about worshiping angels, warrior angels, ministering angels, right? Pro, uh, proclaiming angels. We started with the cherubim, right? We dealt with the seraphim, right? Then we dealt with the warrior and the messenger angels and then the uh, ministering angels. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a what? Is that hierarchical? Yes. This is a monotheo. A monotheomonarchical the, uh, the, uh, uh, pattern of God sitting on his throne and ruling over creation. And notice what he says. He's high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. This is Isaiah in a vision, verse two. And above it stood the what? They're angels, aren't they? Seraph, singular, seraphim, plural. Now notice what it says. And each one of them had six wings. And with two, he did what? What is that called? Covering. They would not dare show their face before the ineffable bliss. They would not dare do it. Each one of them had wings and with his wings he covered his face and with twain he covered his feet and with twain he did what? Face, feet, flying. Boy, that's a wild look. I'm I'm trying to envision that. How do you fly while you're covering your feet and your face? But I know what you're doing. You're honoring holy God. Do you see it? Now, all the other angels are subordinate to them. There's no angels running up on God, looking him face to face. (laughs) Do you see it? Teach your gospel truth, let you go. The woman is to have a covering over her head. 
the text is using a kind of symbolic metaphor under a cultural contextual framework. Look at verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 12. For as the woman is of the man, even so the man is also by the woman. But all things are of what? Judging yourselves. Is it comely? Verse 13, that a woman pray unto God uncovered. See it? So she's praying. She's supposed to pray covered. Doth not even nature itself reach, teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a what? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a what? So what is Paul doing? He's taking a natural creation order as an analogy of a cultural controversy. Creation order, cultural controversy. A creation order, cultural controversy that rises to the level of an ecclesiastical witness, meaning this. He said in nature, there is a fundamental is not absolute, but a fundamental distinction between men and women where they hadn't lost their mind. That women would dress and behave in a fashion that was in contradistinction to men. Virtually everywhere on the planet, it would be seen by women's hair being different and more prodigious than men. It's not talking about how long. It's just simply saying a kind of length that would make a difference between men and women. Does that follow? Right. And this is not even about don't get trapped by the symbol, get trapped by the substance behind the symbol. Don't miss that. This is really important. But I'm going to show you the danger of neglecting the symbol, because in our present culture today, having neglected the symbol so long, women are bald headed fundamentally. If I'm making some sense, of course I am. Because all your women that want to be men know how to do it symbolically by cutting their hair. Y'all don't know that. That is the little. See, so they have codes in the homosexual community. They have codes. And when they want to symbolize the butch position or masculine position or what they call the top position, you will see the hair cut. Did you hear me? Right. Because the devil can't hide completely and he doesn't want to. He, he wants everybody that wants to abandon the gospel in order. That's what he wants. Let me see whether or not you really take God seriously. I'm going to run up on you as a chick, but I'm going to be expressing masculine energy and I'm going to see whether or not you were ready to cross the line. Y'all hear what I'm saying? This was going on in the first century. What Paul is dealing with here was priestess worship of the um, of the um, of the Corinthian culture at that time. Uh, the the um, the Delphi oracles, the, um, the 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 secular worship of the priesthood in that time had female priests who went around bald headed, actually engaging in the worship. And the homosexual priests were actually the men wearing wigs. And this is also where androgynous androgyny came in in the priesthood as well. This is the real sad, tragic. The word shame there, um, iskuno in the Greek, the word shame there is the idea of being unclean or being filthy. It's the idea of being naked. It's the idea of being without approval with God. Did that make some sense? Because he says it's a shame. He knows why he's using that term. He's saying the term shame is the idea that occurred when Adam and Eve lost their covering. 
when they had sinned against God. You guys remember that. And now they're hiding because they have no anointing, no covering. And God said, who told you you were a snake? Didn't I teach you that? That term naked has its origins in the word for the serpent there because the serpent is naked. He has no covering. Almost all animals have some kind of covering. The snake doesn't. I taught you that, but it's good for you to have it again. And see, this is what makes him miserable. He has no covering. And the people that are outside of Christ have no covering. And this is why Jesus said to the rulers, you are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father you're going to do. Y'all hearing what I'm saying? Right. And this is a profound truth. I'm getting ready to cap it with a insight into Christ here in a moment. But for the woman wanting to appear to be equal to the man without distinction is saying, I don't need a covering because my covering is Jesus. Did that make some sense? Yeah. Well, he's all our covering as the church ecclesia and collective. But you were made for the man. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, you were made for the man. And in and, and, and this sense, the man was never meant to wear a yarmulke. Never. So stay with me. I'm going to teach you a truth. We're not in Q&A yet. The man was never meant to wear a yarmulke. This is our Jewish brethren once again forbidding the advance of revelation in the New Testament. So revelation in the New Testament says that the man must not be covered. Because his covering is Christ. And Christ is no longer veiled. The veil has been removed. The glory of the ineffable bliss in the person of Christ is revealed to us. And Christ is our head now. That makes some sense. Right. We all with open face, open face, no more veil are beholding in the law and the word in the mirror, the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into his image day by day by the spirit of the living God. The veil is removed under the Old Testament. Yes. Coverings everywhere in the New Testament. Men ought not to cover his head. And, and I get why our Jewish brethren are doing it. They don't see Jesus. Did that make some sense? So we have this perilous pendulum always going on in the church. What do I mean by perilous pendulum? The church, it gets trapped by symbolism, failing to understand the substance behind the symbolism. And then in self-righteousness, they turn the symbolism into some kind of gigantic mockery. So I was talking to one of my Jewish brothers recently here about uh, head coverings with women today, because in your Orthodox Jewish church, they still wear head coverings. And I said, yeah, our churches did that many, many years ago because this was a cultural thing. You still have this in different parts of the world. Women in the Islamic culture still wear, you know, hijabs and stuff like that, hijabs, and, and they cover. And, and in their culture, they cover up everything. I mean, just everything, you know. We, we, is that even a woman in that thing? <laughs> Help me, I can't even tell. Right. That's like straight. Anyhow, um, swinging so far to that end, what you have in many of our churches is a self-righteous assertion of being better than the people that don't wear a covering. See, but this is no different than the false assurance that comes with circumcision for the Jews. And, And Paul made it very plainly. 
circumcision or uncircumcision, it does not matter. What really matters is a new creature. That's Galatians chapter 6.15, right? Head covering or not head covering. If you wear a head covering, it just means that you understand the symbol. But what good is a head covering if your heart is hard and you're fighting against your authority? Am I making some sense? I think that we have drifted really far today in terms of understanding the purpose and design of clothing, period, as you guys can see. But that's what happens when the pendulum is swinging left or right whenever we're not grounded in Christ. The Bible is clear. Women are to be modest. That's all. Not distracting. So in our black churches for many years, they wore hats so big you couldn't even see the preacher. They, they come in there with hats. They sit down. And so now, you, now, you, now you're talking about offending believers, right? You know, give no offense to the Jew or the Gentile or the Church of God. You're gonna offend somebody with a big old hat coming in, feathers flying everywhere, and right. All of that is a gaudy show in the flesh, isn't it? We just we're so unstable, so unstable. But if the woman have long hair, it's to her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Paul is speaking contextually about how nature helps us to understand these differentiation characteristics essential to keeping balance. All right, some Q&A for a moment. I need somebody running. Did that help you guys? All right, good. We'll start with Sherry and then we'll go. Okay. Um, Can you hear me? Yep. So did you fully develop or uh, uh, the part about the woman being covered? Yeah, I did. What, 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 what? I mean, well, wait a minute. Here's the thing is before you got to that last, I think it was 1 Corinthians 11, was it 16? The last one you just showed mm-hmm. um, about the woman covering I, I did is verse her 15. hair. I did, yeah, I did verse 15. I didn't do 16. Okay, okay, 15, about the woman's covering mm-hmm. beer or hair, because prior to that, I'm thinking to myself, what about unmarried women? I mean, what's the implication for them in their ability to pray and prophesize, as you were saying? Right, so what I gave you was three categories. I gave you the category of nature, making a distinction between men and women, because that's what we're dealing with, a taxonomical order that men and women are not the same. We are ontologically equal, we are categorically distinct, and we are functionally different. Did that make some sense? Mm -hmm. We argue that just out of the explicit testimony of scripture, man first, then the woman. Man did not come out of the woman, the woman came out of the man. The man was not for the woman, the woman was for the man. That syllogistic argument teaches us that the church is for Christ. Christ is not for the church. Christ is the head of the church. He gets to tell the church what to do. But today, the church is just like the lost woman in the world, not submitting to her head. Am I making some sense? Right. So we didn't get to verse 16 because in verse 16, what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is, I don't have to deal with these kind of arguments in most of our other churches. But I do with you because you guys are living in that culture with the Delphi oracles and female priests and and women that want to prophesy and and cut their hair and men that want to be androgynous and homosexual. That's a cultural thing. You never hear this argument in any of the other epistles. 
Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? That being the case, what I'm telling us is you and I don't have to worry about whether or not we should be wearing head coverings or not. What we should be doing is understanding the priority of head covering in its relationship to Christ. That is the most critical thing. Okay. That is the most critical thing. Women start wearing head coverings in any, go to any of the churches where they do the head coverings. And, and I, I don't mean to make a mockery at all. I will tell you, you will find them utterly lopsided and frequently deficient in the truth as it is in Jesus. You will find legalistic systems of self-righteousness where the women with the hats are looking upon the women without hats in a kind of arrogant assumption that they're more secure in Christ than the women without hats. And I'm so glad Paul gave us verse 14 and 15 around nature. Does that make some sense? Right. And I've taught this for many years. When your gospel is off, you can know it. Can, this is how you can know your gospel is off because your gospel, the gospel, when it's right, can work anywhere on the planet. It can work anywhere on the planet. When it's not right, it can only work in certain places. Right. It can only work in certain places. So you got massively poor communities around the world where clothing is barely worn because of the, 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 uh, the undereducated elements of society. And they come into the auspices of the gospel. Now, what are they going to do? Go get some leaves and put on their head? You see what we're doing? We're setting up them up for a distraction around the symbolism rather than the substance behind it. And what is far more important is the substance behind it than the symbol behind it. Far more important. So that's why I'm glad, Paul. And, and, and what's happening is in our world, we have come to, to understand that. We've, we've come to see that in our culture, that it's not about hat wearing, head wearing, that's going to make you right with God. It's about heart wearing. That's going to make you right with God. That's what the issue is. You can wear long hair if you want to. You can wear short hair. But if your short hair is a symbol that you are a butch, that you are seeking to occupy the man's position, you're in rebellion. Or if your hair is long and you are a harlot, you're doing the same thing. And so it is with the men that allow themselves to become effeminate and weak and soft. And, and failing to, to meet the characteristics of the broad spectrum of a balanced human being with proper gifts and stuff like that. This is really important to understand. That's why Paul said, uh, no, this falls in the same category with circumcision. The male Jews were proud about their circumcision, just as lost as any Gentile proud about their circumcision. Circumcision doesn't avail anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. So I um, hold on. You had something else. I did. It only about um, the woman wanting the man's position. Is that related to Genesis? Is it three sixteen? Of course. But okay. That, but the That's text, that, the text there is a reiteration of what her position was supposed to be. Um, she's giving up the mic now. No, Genesis three sixteen says, uh, and your husband shall rule over you. Your desire shall be towards your husband and he shall rule over you. So that passage there is a Hebrew construction that corresponds with what happened in Genesis chapter 
four with Cain uh, and Abel and Cain being tempted to be taken by the serpent. And his job was to submit to God and overcome the temptation of the serpent. So it is with women. Um, there would be a natural affinity on the part of the woman to want to grasp for authority, which is what Eve did. But what God says was come back up under your husband. Use your authority in your relationship with your husband as a functional um, complementarian relationship. You have no right to exercise authority. And that's, uh, of course, Paul is setting us up for 1 Timothy 2. Verse 14, women shall not usurp authority over the man, but be in subjection as also saith the law. Did y'all get that? He's setting us up for 1 Corinthians 14, where it says the same thing, right? Women are to keep silent in the church. They are not to exercise vocal authority or have rule over the men. Of course, you know, nobody's obeying that today. So I just want to capture it. So I love the idea of being covered by a man, but I find that the applied theological practice of covering to be severely lacking in the Christian men who have sought to court me. How does a girl or woman find covering when there are no godly men in her life equipped to cover her or the godliest godliest men blindly walk in the flesh, mistaking, self-glorifying control or personal gain for biblical hierarchy? Is it all on her to get that covering when she doesn't have it? Is her faith then her covering? Is a female's covering an act of her own will and flesh? Or is it up to the men in the world to be truly godly and choose to cover the women and girls? And maybe then womanhood wouldn't be abandoned or there's just gender dysphoria. And how does she know she is covered and how can she get the covering that she needs in a world that is lacking in godly masculinity. It's called waiting on God. It's called waiting on God for all women in the sense that you would want a physical male representative covering. All of us as true believers have Christ as our covering. We do. The practical covering relationship is important though. Don't think that it's not. It's extremely important. Like children are covered by the parents. That's 1 Corinthians 7. So imagine the world that you and I live in where the kids are not covered by parents that don't love God and don't train them up in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. You don't have to imagine that. You know that world. You see what's going on with the kids. They're not covered because women are not being godly mothers and men are not being godly men. And and so the children are being sacrificed to Moloch. You do see that. Right. And then you also see that there is no spiritual covering in the constant battle between men and women in the attitudinal, dispositional conflict orientation between males and females. It's not an automatic covering just because you're married. It should be. But a contract does not automatically, axiomatically confer spiritual powers upon the male or the female. Y'all know what I'm saying is true. You can go down to the courthouse and sign some paper and that does not mean that woman is submitting to you, nor is that man actually providing, protecting, or producing. All of these mandates, this taxonomical order has to be brought into reality by a vital connection with God through Christ. That's, that's exactly right. And so, but because structurally, historically, Um, humanity from the beginning is why I told you guys earlier that when you go through history, you don't find major sections of society operating in the separated, segregated, egalitarian, hostile, conflict oriented, male against female, female against male societies. They have largely because the only way you thrive is a complementary relationship between men and women all over the world. That has been the case. 
And over time, that has deteriorated as we have grown more political than pious. So I've taught us this for years. If you lean into uh, political, um, into a political framework of thinking, obviously feminism is going to snatch you up as a female and turn you into an Amazonian warrior and and you're going to go to war against men. I mean, even Nylee, as much as she was being eloquent about her expression concerning men, had an edge about it as well. You could just hear it coming out. Did you hear it? Now, it had an edge. If you go back and read it through, you can pick up that there is a a disgruntled sort of perspective about men. But she's she's a product of the culture. You take 10 women and, and eight of them think just like that about men. Did you hear what I just stated? You take 10 women, eight of them think that way. That's part of that's part of the culture. Her, I told her seven times she didn't hear me. You got to wait. And while you're waiting, you're grounding yourself in God. And you know God is our ultimate covering. Now, the beauty of having a good husband as head of the home is that you have someone who has committed before God to operate out of those three categories. Did that make some sense? Right. If you got a brother who is going to be a protector and that covers a whole lot of dimensions, not just physical, spiritual, economic, social, and then it's going to be a provider. That's spiritual, that's practical, that's economic, that's social, that's psychological, pouring into. Did that make some sense? And then a producer. As generally as a rule, the goal of the man and the woman is to replicate children. Would you agree? And then both of them have to occupy the position of representing Christ to pour into those children protection, provision, so that they become competent producers as well. That's the model, but that has been completely destroyed and decimated in our society, has it not? And, and we're being taught the exact opposite today in that we're being told that men don't need women and women don't need men and children don't even need parents. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Um, your job is to wait and waiting means getting right with God in your own life as women and learning how to be content with your walk with God and your calling and discovering your gifting and employing your gifting. If in fact, a good man is on the uh, schedule for you before God. Right. It's not axiomatic that all women are going to be married. Right. In that in that sense, we learned this when we were in chapter seven. Didn't we learn that he that will be married will have trouble in the flesh? Remember what Paul was married and then he was not. We don't know the historical account. Him being a Pharisee, he had to be married. But then he ended up in a single state. He said, hey, I would that all of y'all was like me. Right. Single. And, uh, uh, you know, married men and women who've been married a long time understand that. Because once you sign over to be in league with and bound to another person for the rest of your life, you don't get to enjoy the benefits and blessings of being single. And there are huge benefits in being single. Massively huge benefits in being single. And if you should deny that, you are denying the essence of our Lord's model to us. He was single. 
So marriage is an um, option for functional purposes by which you can glorify God in a deep commitment with somebody else. But it's not easy. It's not easy. It's not impossible, but it's not easy. I've got six daughters. They're up in age. Only two of them are married. Why? It's not easy. Got another one getting ready to marry off next week. But uh, being married is not easy. So everybody needs to be working on themselves. In the meanwhile, here's what you're guaranteed. You have a perfect husband in Jesus. Yeah, but I can guarantee you, you tick him off all the time. So here he is, the perfect husband, and we're still complaining. All right, who, who, who has the mic? Come on, let's go, let's go. All right, Jackie. Okay, my question. Um, you got to keep the mic up to your mouth. My question is for um, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, verse 10. So um, I just need a little more, expl- you know, can you explain the power when it says for this cause of the, the authority one- is the man in the household. The authority, this for this. So if you follow the syllogism, stay with me, follow the syllogism. You got Christ who has authority over his head and that's the father. I do nothing but that which my father tells me to do. Now, see, today, you, 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 if a sister talked like that, there'd be a bunch of sisters that would drag her behind the house and cause her to disappear. I do nothing but what my husband tells me to do. <laughs> Woo! And you put that on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> Boy! Woo! My will is to do the will, my meat is to do the will of my husband the Lord gave to me. What a beautiful thing. And for a husband to be able to say, I'll lay down my life for my bride. As long as she don't burn the food. Um, authority simply means that we are within those categories that God calls it. It's the same thing with the children. I told you, First Corinthians chapter 7, children are sanctified by the parents. Parents don't have to be perfect, but they have to be committed. There's no way children should be afraid under a mom and daddy that's a she-bear and a he-bear. Y- y'all know what I'm talking about? No. Yeah. No, my kids, was, they were uncomfortable for, for many years when I kept reminding them, son, daughter, your dad came from West Oakland, East Oakland. I grew up in the hood. Yeah, it's natural for us to protect things. You don't have to worry about it. You know, so they didn't grow up in the hood, so it's kind of embarrassing that their dad grew up in the hood. But then by the time you're 14, 15, and you got all those gorillas around you, my dad grew up in the hood. <laughs> he still got partners that came out of the Black Panthers. Yeah. You know, it, it be, I'm like, thank you, Lord, for growing up in the hood. Right, because you have to protect the precious little ones. Right, my, my, my daughter's new. I, no, no gorillas. They're going to have to behave themselves. They'll get taxed. You guys understand that? Right, it's not even to be hesitated. 
not even be hesitant because there's too many bad things happening to kids today because of no covering. Who who has the mic? Because we're supposed to be done. Hold on, hold on. Females first. Marlis. Well, this has been a very um, rich evening, even though I got here late. Um, It's given me a lot. There's so much more to think about than what I'm going to address tonight. Um, I just want to say, somewhat humorously, but also seriously, I I wear short hair not because I'm trying to be masculine, just because I have, I think, endocrine problems. And I actually think if um, I, it just occurred to me, if I, I would love to have long hair. I used to have longer hair, and I'd like to ask the body to pray for me that that problem can be restored. I'm not sure that it can be because of the length of time, but I would like to have that. I'd like you to, to pray for me. I'm already hearing four or five sisters saying we have Amazon. And wig. No, I don't want to wear a wig. wig. I used to wear a wig. Oh, okay. So here they go. Here she go. I used to wear a wig. Here she go. Here she go. Okay. I'm talking about natural hair. We got to change. We got to change the subject because you know I wasn't talking about that. Okay. So the next thing I wanted to to say is that I really appreciate. I have a. I wondered for a while why the snake, the word snake, was the same thing as the word naked. And tonight you clarified that for me, um, and that's massively profound because and he will never ever be covered again. That's 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 profound, and because and everyone like him will never be covered. And that 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 just gives me even more understanding of what the identity of a sinner. Is um, so I appreciate no, that's that. That's outside of Christ. That's right. Outside of I mean, someone who's not saved, yeah, a non a non Christian. Because sinners who are covered are in a great position, and and see the whole point is God hunted them down and covered them and brought them back in covenant. You guys understand that? That is the gospel. God covers us. Beautiful, my brother. Hey, so first of all, yes, I love the analogy or the um, connection to the serpent. Um, but I actually want to ask about the, the verse that you cited in Genesis. Uh, I believe it was Genesis 3. Um, so first of all, in relation to marriage, uh, um, it does say that it is not good for man to be alone. And God did say that before the fall. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, okay, so when it says that... Um, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, in this passage, God is listing kind of punishments for man's sin towards God. And so... No, you're making an assumption. Oh. Yeah. So in that verse, what God is doing is restoring the order. Uh, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. He's restoring the order. So if you follow, if you really follow the development of it, and it's a a lengthy study. So think about this. I'll show you how this works, my brother. Adam and Eve ran from God. Mm -hmm. And that's called guilt. And the guilt was a consequence of nakedness. 
So God hunted him down and we are in a court scenario now where God is now interrogating them for what happened. And once he interrogates them, they legitimately tell the truth. There was nothing fallacious about it. I've taught everybody to abandon mm-hmm. all of this notion that Adam threw Eve under the bus. All of that's silly. Okay? He did not. He simply said what literally happened. The woman that you gave me gave me the fruit I ate, and hence the situation. And when it was Eve's turn, so he started with the man. This is the hierarchical order. order. Christ came to the man. He dealt with the man, did he not? Mm-hmm. Then he came to the woman. He mm-hmm. dealt with the woman. Then he finally went to the snake, didn't he? And mm-hmm. when he went to the snake, he didn't ask the snake anything. He told the snake, this is your judgment. With the man and the woman, he interrogated them to get them to confess. Because if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins mm-hmm. and to cleanse and cover you, which is what God did with Adam and Eve. This is mm-hmm. called the redemptive narrative. This is the truth. So God comes to us. We don't come to him because we're running like the snake, right? Mm-hmm. He catches up with us and he calls us to tell the truth. And Adam told the truth. Mm-hmm. And God says, well, you're going to die because I already told you you're going to die. But between now and dying, I'm going to cover you. That is redemption. And the same thing he did with, uh, with Eve. So now if you think about it, he told Adam, you're going you're to labor by the sweat of your bra. That's going to happen. But he was already laboring. That was part of the blessing. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to have a, a rigor to it. Okay. And then you're going to go back to the dust from which you came. He told the serpent, you're going to be condemned to the dust, right? Crawling on your belly. And then you will die because the proto-evangel was given to Satan. God spoke to Satan in verse 15 and says, the woman shall, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Your seed will bruise his heel. So God brought the gospel to the snake. God is the one that brought the gospel to the snake. And then he goes to Adam and says, it's going to be hard for you from now on. Eve is going to be hard from you and having children. But they were supposed to have children anyway. So nothing is being taken away here. Watch this. It's being reordered under the fall. And the other reordering was, you, Eve, your desire shall be towards your husband, and he shall what? Well, he was supposed to rule over her in the first place. So there's nothing, there's nothing here out of order. Yes, he created Adam first. This is where our postmodern egalitarian hermeneutics are so bad. Did not he make the man to, to rule over the woman? Of course he did. That's why Paul just said the man was first, not the woman. And the woman was for the man and the man not for the woman. This is what Paul is explaining. But you and I are in our fallen state. We don't get this idea of of, of authority over our head because we're still sinners. This is what Paul is teaching. And so this is really hard for this generation to get around the gospel. Um, but you meet really, truly, solidly got, uh, godly women. And they understand the freedom of having a head, having a husband. The idea of rule means to guide. It's the same way that God rules. over. Does God rule over us? Mm-hmm. Does God rule over you? Yes. Are you ashamed of that? No. Is that a rule that takes away your dignity? No. Does it take away your authority or your potential, your capacity for fullness? No. No, it empowers me. Exactly. And the same thing it would be in a relationship with a woman. One hundred percent in the same way it would be if a man is walking in God's authority and has all of the qualities and gifting that God gives him 
That woman is resourced to be everything she is called to be. Does that make some sense? Right. And this is the misery today in our present generation because women don't get to enjoy that. So we are dealing with levels of brokenness in our society where, you know, we are settling for less than what would actually occupy the promise of of a good marriage. So you meet a good marriage, uh, a godly woman, and there, there are many of them, they would easily be able to say, I have no problem with my husband having the, the final word in a thing. I have no problem with that. That does not mean he's always bringing the final word. That would be foolish for him to always be bringing the final word if he has a wife that's competent, that's smart, that's, that's witty, that's gifted. He's barely ever overruling her judgment. 42 years. Very seldom do I overrule my wife's judgment. Did you hear what I just stated? Mm-hmm. Very seldom. Just very seldom. I don't find it necessary. But in some cases I have, and I've had to make that judgment. And guess what? Whatever happens on me. But guess what else? When I let her do it, whatever happens is on me. So um, it's really having a proper understanding of, of godly rule versus what has been taught in terms of this godless, patriarchal, oppressive, oppressive narrative that we've been dealing with in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, if you read that text carefully, he was saying to Eve, get back under the auspices of your husband because you're not safe outside of that. Think about it. The snake came and talked to her, did he not? Yeah. Where was Adam at? Away. That's right. Now, think, think, why would the snake wait until Adam was not around? So he can get her from out, out from up under her headship because Ecclesiastes chapter eight, chapter yeah eight says two are better than one. Mm-hmm. So if Adam was there, him and Eve could have negotiated with the snake and tied him up and made barbecue out of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so the point that's unless you see he both said he'd rather a cow but if he was starving and out in the Sahara desert okay I'm telling you moccasin would taste pretty good what I'm getting what I'm getting at is that collaboration is a beautiful thing collaboration is a beautiful thing so in relationship communication leads to collaboration collaboration leads to cooperation and cooperation is to be cultivated If you think about the body of Christ, I'm going to let this be the closing observational question. Think about the body of Christ, where we are today after 2,000 years. Christ is the head of the church, is he not? And a healthy community, when we try to judge things, aren't we going to use God's word? Right, because Christ is the head. We don't get to just do whatever we want to do. He's our husband. Would y'all agree with that? I'm I'm trying to follow the the idea of godly rule. It makes it easier. I'd rather read the book and find out how to do it than to just go out there willy nilly and do whatever I want to do and then find out I'm disobeying my husband. Right there. But here's the other thing about this. Think about this. This is God's word. But guess what God did? He brought his wife into collaboration with him to write this book. This is so what we have to overcome is this extreme idea that 
that rule is a kind of hyper dictatorial sort of narcissistic uh, thing that's done exclusively. It's not so. It never was ever meant to be that way. It was always meant to be a collaborative. But somebody has to actually be the final authority. And this is what you're losing in your society today. This present neo-Marxist postmodernism at present is a deconstruction of all forms of authority. You do know that. That's how the that's how the enemy got in. He got in. He wedged Adam and Eve. Adam wasn't there. That's first Timothy two. Eve was in the transgression, not the man. Because if Adam was there, he would have been in the transgression, wouldn't he? She was in the transgression and then she gave to him and he freely ate. As you and I know, the mystery of redemption there. Christ freely ate for us. That's called love. He laid down his life for us or else we would have perished without a redeemer. If Jesus didn't assume our sin. And so here this this idea of headship is not taking away dignity, is not taking away authority, is not taking away fullness. If we do it right, women are and and we already know this is the case. I'm I'm, I'm being tautological here. Um, The best women in the world have a healthy view of men. The best women in the world have a healthy view of men. And the best men in the world have a healthy view of women. That, that makes sense, right? An absolutely healthy, healthy view of women. And, and we ought not to fall prey. You and I should not fall prey to a faulty bifurcation. We shouldn't get trapped by the battle between men and women. We have, it's wrong, it's been devastating. We shouldn't. Every man and every woman should be overcoming this impulse to want to fight with the female and the female with the male for dignity and rights. All that indicates is intrinsic insecurity on your own part. That makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. I, I hope that that helps. It's just you don't have to you know, believe it, but I, I hope that it helps. I think we all have to just make sure we keep working towards model. Model is critical, like model. Like, I love being a man. I got a bunch of men, and I raise your hand. You men love being men? You love being men? There you go. I love being a man. You know, whatever that, all that entails, right? That's like, this is like powerful. Yeah, I love that. We totally presuppose that for, for all you ladies. But we could struggle with that, couldn't we? We could struggle with whether or not we love being what God made us to be. We could struggle with that. There's nothing nothing easy about, like, you know, the question becomes, what is a man? What is a woman, right? All that's that's important. This This is the matrix of our battle. I hope our study helped us out a little bit in that regard tonight. There's much more, much more we got to do, you guys, because otherwise we'll be. There's a time coming and it won't be too long from now. That in major sectors of our society. A conversation around a male or female. Will be fundamentally irrelevant. Yes, we Everything is furiously moving towards androgynous expression. That is the ultimate technique. I'm, I'm working on, I told you, I'm working on teaching you guys that. The goal of the devil is to put an end 
to the necessity of males and females. Listen carefully to me. I'll I'll stop here. Because our world is biological, the practical, functional process of propagation necessitated male-female relationships. Because our world now is hyper-scientific and godless, it does not necessitate the prerequisite of a male-female harmonious relationship with all of the fundamental attraction, attachment paradigms harmonially to bring about the beauty of the conception of a child in the womb and the complexity of that until birth. We no longer need that. Do you guys understand that? We've already destroyed it as an axiomatic principle in relationship. Men and women are having babies without it having any profound, deep emotional attachment to the sperm donor. And now with CRISPR technology and mRNA technology and building babies by design already taking place in godless societies, in just a few minutes, you can order your baby. Do you guys know that? Do you know that? And that being the case, that being the case, there will be no need for men and women to have the strong, compelling drive towards each other at the profundity of intimacy. Do you not know that? We are already in the matrix of the sort of metaverse of isolation and cubicle where men and women are being largely satisfied by a synthetic world called internet and, 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 you know, and, and, and uh, social media so that their gratification is coming outside of relationship. Do you not know that? And shortly, the intervention between the males and the females, which is deteriorating, will be artificial intelligence at the robotic level. Do you not know that's already happening? You don't know that? It's happening already. So extrapolate that or generalize that across exponential developmental capacities over the next 10 years and we will be having a kind of boring conversation around, you know, Jimmy marrying Susie. You see what I'm getting at? This is why you see so much tension in the courts around abortion up to and after the birth. You see so much tension around what constitutes marriage, whether it's between a man or a woman, so much tension around what constitutes a man or do you not know that these are all massively spiritual indicators of the utter destruction of the male female species? If not, wake up because you're deluded if you don't understand that what I'm teaching today is a destruction of the taxonomy of God. That's where we are. That's where we are. All right, Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for the saints. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies. May it not be so. May it not be so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I need somebody to help me.